We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for FlexBox, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. We invite you to join us as we discuss how to shift the classroom, the learning environment, the mindset, and the pedagogy to try something new, reignite wonder, and reimagine education. If you are in the Bay Area, we are currently accepting applications for students for the fall of 2023. Yes, we have limited spots available, and also for our elementary and middle school starting at TK through seventh grade for fall of 2024. Up Academy has created our framework so that new and existing schools can develop imaginative, exciting, relevant, engaging learning environments for all of their students. We're excited to introduce the Rebel Project Literacy Curriculum. It's a fully integrated literacy and project-based learning curriculum that supports social-emotional development and is based on skills and competencies. Learn more at projectup.us. Have you ever thought of opening your own school? Project Up is also supporting new educators and families to create schools like Up Academy and schools of your own design. Reach out to join our affiliate network at projectup.us. Now, let's get to today's episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Nicole Cabellis and Brett Thayer. Nicole has a serious passion, call it a special interest, for autism advocacy. Diagnosed with autism at two years old, she has pursued various types of autism advocacy work over the last 20 years. Her artwork and poetry focus on celebrating the autistic experience and spreading awareness about ableism, which she uses to promote understanding autism. She's a former art educator and currently working towards a certification in counseling. She lives in Denver, Colorado. Brett Thayer is a retired public school teacher and the parent of an autistic child. He brings his experience teaching autistic children in a mainstream classroom setting, as well as a parent's perspective navigating the complexities of having a child with special needs in public schools. He currently lives in northern Vermont. Welcome, Brett and Nicole. Thank you. 
Thank you. So the three of us now are in three completely different parts of the country. <laughs> I know, isn't it wonderful? Yes, the two of you are spread apart as well. Can you tell us how you met and kind of how you decided to work together and what you're currently working on? Sure. We were former colleagues at a high school in Arvada, Colorado. And so we worked together, not on, not on the same team. And Nicole taught art and I teach social studies, but we were able to collaborate on a lot of things. And I think Nicole can explain how we actually started working together. Yeah. So Arvada West High School was my first ever teaching job. And I'm very open about my autism. And I think with the newness of the discussion of neurodiversity in the workplace, I think there was some vulnerability of not only, you know, being the only autistic teacher in the school, but education doesn't have a lot of autistic teachers if you compare it to the tech industry. So what I did is I disclosed that I had autism to our school's instructional coach. And immediately she said, oh, let me introduce you to Brett. He's the father of a young adult with autism. I'm probably what, like six years older than your son? Yeah, it sounds right. And so we met and I really felt like Brett was a fantastic mentor to me. And really the biggest difference was I felt very safe with him. So even though I would say everyone in that school and everybody in my career in education has been very supportive, accommodating, I feel like I could speak the language of autism and they knew what to say. But having a mentor who was in the autism community who understood what autism was and I didn't have to go on a whole speech about here's how autism works and here are my strengths and here are my struggles. And then to be transparent about that in a way where I didn't feel judged or how is this going to affect my professional reputation was really helpful. You know, and then additionally, I think being able to collaborate with another veteran teacher who taught a subject that was different than mine really helped. He used a lot of his agile practice to help me develop stronger teaching. So I really appreciated his mentorship. We met about once a week mm -hmm. for the entire year, just touched base and checked in. And I tremendously appreciate that he made time for me considering that when we teach, we give so much of our time and energy to our students, then we're tired, we have responsibilities to our families. And so for him to feel like he was willing to give that energy to me, what made the difference in the world for my first year of teaching, but really helped me to thrive for the later years of moving through my newer teacher years. Yeah. And it was good that you were able to, you know, you would come to my classroom and then you could just decompress, right? You had issues or struggles and you're like, you just needed somebody else to be a sounding board that was not going to evaluate you, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't an admin role or anything like that. I was just like, tell me what's on your mind this week. And then you would say, you know, am I crazy for thinking this? This is what I'm doing. And it's like, nope, sounds good. So it, it more than anything, I was just there to, to listen and to help you kind of problem solve some of the things that you're going through in your first year of teaching. Yeah. And I'll add that one of the hard parts about being autistic and a first year teacher is you don't know what an autistic struggle is or what a new teacher struggle is. That's a good point. Or like, what is a new new teacher struggle that is unique to a neurodiverse teacher? So I feel like Brett was able to pick up on that maybe a little bit quicker than neurotypical people who weren't involved in the autism community that were, 
an instructional coach, an evaluator, that kind of thing. So I was at Arvada West for a year and I had to find a new job because I was on a sabbatical contract and the teacher I replaced had decided to take his job. So then I worked at a high school in Highlands Ranch and about, well, it was October, 2022, Brett had reached out to me and he said, Hey, I was thinking about, you know, starting a podcast about autism. What do you think? Do you want to be co-host? And I was really excited about it because I had wanted to start my podcast for a very long time, but I hadn't thought about doing it with somebody else. So I gave up on my own podcast idea and I was like, yeah, I'd love to collaborate with you. And so we officially launched Understanding Autism in January. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with ed tech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com B for a demo. That's IXL.com B-E. So the podcast is called Understanding Autism. Yes. yes. And you're co-hosting. What are the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve with that? What are you sharing with your audiences? Well, one thing I think is at the top of our list because of the name of our podcast is to break down the stigmas and stereotypes around autism and how that impacts not only neurotypical people, but neurodiverse people as well, right? I mean, it's like getting the information out there in a way that's informative and not judgmental right? So we can have a conversation about that. And I think what's cool about what we do and what makes us unique and different is that we come from two different perspectives on this issue, right? I'm coming from the educator and the parent point of view, and Nicole is coming from her own personal experiences. And I think that is a huge strength. Yeah. So to give an example of disassembling stigma, our third episode is about why people with autism don't make eye contact. And one of the things that really struck me is why are parents and teachers so pushy about mandating eye contact when we as human beings have habits of not making eye contact? Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking to myself, why is eye contact so important? Why is there so much fear that adults have if a kid doesn't make eye contact? And how do we just norm that this is a human behavior? So that's a a really important approach we're taking in our first season, which, you know, it's about 20 episodes just discussing why does this behavior occur? What is the neurology of the behavior? What is the social emotional component? What's the sensory component? And then also, why do other people do it? Why do other people who don't have autism do it? So that's kind of like, I would say the core goal. We also talk about these topics in relation to, okay, as educators, what have we done to address it knowing what we know about autism with the hopes that that can support other teachers who may not have a deep understanding 
to support autistic students better. And then we take it a step further and talk about, okay, if we experience these challenges in the workplace, how can employers respond in a positive way? Yeah, I have a couple of different things I want to ask about there. And I think one of them is around employers and your experience having and working with Brett as a mentor. And like as you were talking about that, I was thinking through how amazing it would be for all first-year teachers or, you know, if people are coming into the workforce, into the tech industry, as you mentioned, like there's just such a higher incidence of adults with autism in the tech industry than in education. Like, what if we were able to partner them with a mentor early on and someone who has an understanding of how to help you navigate those things? Like, is this a company thing? Is this an autism thing? Is this a human thing? Is this just that person's thing? And like, (laughs) right, because we all have our own things too. And from a company perspective, what things can we do to help all of our adults to work together and collaborate together and make sure that everybody's having a meaningful experience? And then my second thought around stigmas and stereotypes was how to be an ally. That's really the role Brett took in that first year of school is being a really amazing ally and someone to lean on. And so how can the rest of us do that? I think that's really um, interesting, but it's all about intent. So we both attended uh, the neurodiversity conference um, in the workplace in Washington, D.C. in March. And I can tell you that there's only a very handful of communities and organizations that are intentionally trying to help people in the autistic community be successful in the workplace, right? And so it's a matter of commitment of companies to be able to say, yes, this is important to us. This is a demographic that uh, we want to draw from for employment. So therefore, we're going to dedicate some of our resources to enable a successful transition from school to work for a person on the spectrum. That takes intent and a meaningful conversation. And through that, then you're going to have success, right? You're going to have people who are going to be more comfortable, more um, open to you know, declare that they're autistic and to ask for accommodations, the reasonable accommodations in the workplace. And I think Nicole can talk about this is that that's kind of a roadblock for a lot of people on the spectrum. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about this in an episode. It's like, when do I come out to my employer? Do I come out to my employer that I'm on the spectrum or not? Yeah. So I want to talk about what I felt went well with two different school communities, as well as when I was student teaching, I was very open about my autism. I think as a whole, I did feel like most people responded very well, but there were some areas of growth that I feel I can give constructive feedback on to make things better. So what I think was a strength was that I think everybody responded very mindfully and thoughtfully to my diagnosis. I didn't feel like there was this fear of, oh, like you're autistic and there are struggles and you can't handle being a teacher. And what I would say is like, If you've made it through student teaching, you know, you can handle being a teacher. That person has enough self-awareness and self-regulation and may need a little bit of support, but it doesn't mean that they're totally incapable, that they don't have the social skills to interact with a diverse range of students or that they can't keep kids safe because they're highly sensitive. I actually disclosed my autism in an interview for my last teaching job. And I did talk about my autism being an asset to my role as a teacher and how it supported a a wide variety of students. And my principal was so amazed by the way I talked about my autism as an asset that she was like, 
you're definitely a top two candidate. So, you know, despite all of the fear that I would experience discrimination in the workplace by being open, I think my openness amazed people. I think they saw the value of my diversity and how it could contribute to the school community. And I think that schools yearn for diverse teachers in general. And so I think they were really excited about that response. So I definitely felt uplifted. And I felt like when I needed help, there wasn't a lot of conversations about, I need to get people up to speed. And the great part about working in education is because whether you're an administrator, you're a teacher, you're a counselor, you have experience with at least one kid on the spectrum. So it's not a completely unfamiliar experience. I felt like when I needed accommodations, like, for example, I just couldn't handle being in pep rallies. It was just too much of a sensory thing. So I felt comfortable saying, hey, I need support with this. And then that led to me being a, what do you call it? Like the teacher that supervises the students who also had sensory issues. Another one was I had a lot of anxiety about mass shootings. So I talked to our school resource officer and I said, I have these sensory struggles. How can I get support for this and keep students safe? I thought they were going to maybe judge my capacity to keep kids safe. But the school resource officer was like, I'm really glad you're asking these questions. Let's talk about it. So in that regard, I, I feel like it went really well. I felt like the counseling and special ed departments really loved sending kids that you know had neurodiverse challenges or maybe were lower achievers. They knew that I could be that person that could uplift them and make them feel successful. So that that went really well. I think in terms of areas of growth, I think in general, like I said, and and I think what Brett said earlier, the whole conversation about neurodiversity in the workplace, if you compare it to supporting people of color in the workplace or supporting LGBTQ plus people in the workplace, it's a very new discussion. And so I think oftentimes people were willing to accommodate, but they didn't know how to accommodate. And so they would give these suggestions of, oh, if you have sensory overwhelm, come to my office. And they didn't realize how frequently I had sensory overwhelm, or if they were having a bad day, they didn't have the capacity to support me. I think some other ones, I felt like in the beginning, there was this excitement of, oh, there's this asset that you can bring to the table, but it kind of ended there. So when I proceeded forward and I said, what can I do to connect with families of autistic students? What programs can I do to meet with autistic students and just give them a little bit of extra support? It just seemed like people were too busy and they didn't want to expend more time than they already had giving to other students to build community initiatives that can support that. And then I think another really big issue is there was a person at the Neurodiversity in the Workplace Conference that called it benevolent ableism. You would think that educators who, again, work with a variety of kids, are familiar with IEPs and 504s, have worked with you know kids with autism, that they would apply what they've learned working with diverse kids and apply it to working with diverse coworkers. But what I've learned is that if your only skill of talking to a person of difference is when you're the authority figure talking to a diverse person that's your student, they're going to use that language, which feels very infantizing to me. I think that there have been issues with double standard communication, 
I guess the way that I feel that can be fixed is when you take racial equity training and you're learning about what privilege is and what implicit bias is, what stigma is, all of those skills are universally applicable to every group of people, not just, you know, people of color or neurodiverse people. But I don't feel like those skills are used when working with each other or when you're leading an adult. It's often used with students. And we met a man at the conference who had said, you know, when we're in schools, we really go out of our way to accommodate students of difference, but we don't do the same for coworkers of difference. And so I definitely think that that is a major area of growth. And we need to be invested in that because that whole equity and inclusion piece is our mission and calling as teachers. So I think that Brett and I have a lot of value that we can offer to new teachers that are on the autism spectrum or have a neurodiverse trait, because I think we have a lot of insights that other teachers don't. And I think that when we are kind of working in that space, we might not have as much of a platform to be able to talk about it as we do now with a podcast. How wonderful that you have a podcast. Yeah. You're going to have so much fun. Yeah, I've been listening to you talk and I'm thinking through how you were hired and given jobs and seeing autism as, you know, your superpower and the thing that you could bring to the table that's different and diverse and could be really helpful, especially with neurodiverse students, but also hearing how that was underutilized in the workplace. Like you sound so willing to help and to share and to jump in and to really be able to teach others ways of being an ally and ways of creating accommodations and hearing that, you know, schools or leaders just weren't open to the idea or were too busy or just didn't have things to do is is really disheartening for one. But also it makes me curious if there's also a fear there. Like you were talking about other diversity and talking about racial diversity or LGBTQ and different things that society has been talking about for much longer, which are still hard to talk about. And I feel like within that DEI, we're still not talking about ableism and we're still not talking about disability in the same way. And so if there's also fear of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, appearing in the wrong way. And I think some of it goes back to what Brett was saying around intent. If your intent is good and you're really doing the right things, that's going to come across. I'd be curious, you know, how much of that is busyness and how much of that is fear and how much of that is just unknown. Yeah. Well, I do want to say I don't villainize anybody. You know, I I never (laughs) felt discriminated against. I was never bullied in the workplace. I really have to give kudos to every principal and administrator that I worked with. I felt the most supported by them. I really feel like they showed up, rose to the occasion, made me feel safe in addition to Brett in a way that I think a lot of coworkers weren't able to show. So I really appreciate that administrators were really committed to getting to that place. And I feel very lucky because I don't feel like every administrator shows that level of kindness and empathy that the administrators I worked with showed to me. I think the barrier is like what you said earlier, is the conversations are so heavily focused on race and LGBTQ plus inclusion that ableism is not one of those conversations. And I think that a lot of general educators, they don't think that their autistic students are then going to become autistic working professionals and could eventually be one of their coworkers. 
So I feel like there's just kind of a lack of awareness in general. And I think that with people that gave advice on accommodations that maybe didn't work out, I didn't feel like there was ignorance or malice. I think it just came down to they just didn't even know where to start. And as much as I like being an educator and having that platform to say, here's what works best for me, to do that all the time with new people created a level of burnout. And when I was distressed, I didn't always want to be the person that educated people on how to support me. And I think a lot of people who have experienced marginalization feel the same way. They don't want to always be in that teacher role. They want other people to do a little bit of work themselves to be able to know how to rise to the occasion and have that conversation equally. I think that the biggest issue, well, you know, I don't fault busyness because I think we're all busy and I can understand that, you know, I have to instigate it, but I also get burned out. Like I can't be the one that carries the weight of an initiative. I need somebody in a position of power, or I need to collaborate with the special education department to start opening doors. If I do that all on my own, either I burn myself out or I end up crossing a boundary that I don't know about from a professional standpoint. But I think in general, there was a lack of conversation about language around equity and inclusion. And I think teachers make the automatic assumption that we just do that because we care about kids and we're working in diverse settings with diverse learners. But I think when you have privilege and you don't understand what that means and you don't understand that privilege creates certain levels of blind spots, then when you, you try to have a conversation about something that is stigmatizing, I noticed a lot of teachers would get very defensive and say like, well, I'm an ally. I've done this. I've worked with these kids for you know X amount of time and you don't understand me. And I felt very dismissed emotionally. Or a common stigma that occurred is, well, because you're autistic and you don't understand social cues, let me inform you. And it really took me taking racial equity training for me to realize what social dynamic was there. And I would often be silenced and shamed for my social skills anytime that I would bring up an issue of equity and inclusion that affected my identity. So I, I do feel like we need that continuous support of what it means to check our implicit bias, what it means to be called out and called in as educators, what it means to have privilege, and what does that mean collectively? You know, so I think people push back on the idea of privilege because we associate privilege with villainy. But it's not about how you handle your own privilege, but it's also about, you know, if you have able-bodied privilege, how does that affect people with disabilities in general? What is the history of that? It is a lot to ask of teachers. You know, we have to carry the burden of understanding all of these isms. But I think that we cannot create an empowered, diverse workplace for adults, for students, if we're not committed to getting training on those things. and being committed to that reflection process of what does it mean when our students call us in or call us out? What does it mean when our coworkers call us in and call us out? I think that lack of ability in the coworkers I had, not my administrators, but the coworkers I had is one of the biggest frustrations I had working as a teacher with autism. I'm just going to take a deep breath now. 
(laughs) (laughs) And thank you for that. Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking through a lot of you know what you were talking about and things that I didn't realize in my life until I had a daughter with disabilities. So I had a daughter with cerebral palsy. She was nonverbal and and couldn't walk. And just being grateful every day that my legs worked. Like I had the ability to walk around and my body would do the things that I wanted it to do. And understanding that this other human being who has all the same thoughts and ideas and emotions and need for belonging that I had couldn't do those things and how difficult that was. And and that was like my introduction into ableism. Also thinking of all of our listeners as you're talking about, you know, the educators and all the things educators need to know and understand. And I'm it's not just educators, it's humans. It's like things that all of us collectively as a society need to know and understand. And looking at myself in the mirror, like I am a middle-aged, straight, white, American woman, right? I, I have so many levels of privilege that are continually being peeled back. And so, you know, how do we continue to do that work? And I guess what's important is like just making sure that we start and taking a look at what are the things that I'm taking for granted? Where are the ways that I can be helpful? And what do I need to learn so that I'm not putting this on others to teach me? But how can I go find that information and learn? Yeah. And I'll also add to that. I don't think school districts who make initiatives for equity and inclusion should rescind that offer. What I've noticed is like some districts, you know, especially after uh, George Floyd's murder, that it was like, all right, well, now we need to focus on racial equity. And then everybody got on board with it. And then all of a sudden it got pulled back. And it was either because of funding or because parents were upset about the whole critical race theory thing. And I feel like it's not a matter of understanding race. It's a matter of having the social skills to understand equity and inclusion. And I think that the conversation about racism talks about it so succinctly with the best amount of detail compared to any other thing. And so I think districts really disadvantage teachers by not having a district-wide mandate about understanding those equity and inclusion skills. And also what can principals do through like a book group or a staff meeting to encourage that communal commitment rather than relying on the teacher who's burned out and has a family and doesn't have any free time beyond the commitments of a standard teacher to, you know, read about racism or homophobia, transphobia, ableism. So I really feel like if if it is a community-wide endeavor, people are more likely to be invested in learning about those skills and talking about it than putting it on themselves to make them learn it too. Yes. We talked a little bit about, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about your art and poetry and some of the poetry that you're working on and mentioned that maybe you'd like to share some of that. Yeah. All right. So you want me to start reading? (laughs) Let's set this up a little bit. So like Nicole talked about, with every episode that we have, Nicole, as an artist, but as a person on the spectrum, shares her art craft on that particular topic, but she also does poetry as well. And what I asked her to do without talking to her first, I should have done that first, but I said, I would love to hear one of your stanzas on your poem differently. And this is our second podcast, What is Autism? So you get to choose which stance do you want to read. Yeah. And for viewers that are listening to the podcast, the whole poem is on our website, understandingautism.info. 
So the poem is inspired by the Autism Self-Advocacy Network's description of autism. And there are six universal components. We think differently. We process our senses differently. We move differently. We communicate differently. We socialize differently. And we might need help with daily living. The section that I wanted to read for this episode is We Think Differently, which is the first one. I was told I was stupid because I think slowly, yet I know that my conscious walks through a labyrinth instead of speeding down the highway like everyone else does. By walking the pace of a crane creeping through muddy moss and marsh, I don't retrace my footsteps, not even an inch. I observe how rock and sand forms concrete crop circles that render the ridges in my brain. The path of life is best framed as a maze, and I am the architect, adjusting the design in phases so that there is a path for me to walk. Too much open space scares me. I am a victim to the tormental elements. The details must be perfect. I lament every hole, crack, and crumble of a structure that keeps me safe, even if it only exists in my head. My thoughts are raw, calloused hands scrambling to keep every wall erect, which is why writing in a planner, paying bills, milling over homework is not a priority. You cannot see that these are obsolete tasks. I need barricades from human nature so I can live forever in my thoughts, the only place where I belong. Beautiful. Thank you, Nicole. The last thing I want to ask, and this is something that I ask all of my guests, because I run an elementary school and I love to hear what people remember from their elementary school years. So this could be any story, any teacher, any project, just a thing that you remember from your elementary school years. So I went to elementary school at Cunningham Elementary School in Colorado. And um, I really love the open floor plan of it. You know, they had different sections of the building dedicated to different Native American tribes. So I distinctly remember that in fourth grade, I was was part of the Ute tribe. And then in fifth and sixth grade, I was part of the Rapaho tribe. But one thing I remember most about those elementary school years is that I had teachers who were kind and friendly and compassionate and allowed us to explore our interests. And that's in fifth and sixth grade, that's where I really got into art. And so I began creating and drawing and processing and making posters. And I was supported throughout the whole process, making dioramas. And it just felt good to be able to produce that in a way that supported my education and my learning. And, and the teachers thought it was, it was great. So because of that positive experience, I always wanted to go back to art in some way and and keep producing that. So I think, you know, getting on my neurodiversity ableism advocacy soapbox, I have two memories that really stood out to me. And they were sort of painful yet enlightening memories for me as an adult. So when I was diagnosed with autism, there was this really big push to cure and fix me to make me normal so that I can go into mainstream school. And I didn't know I had autism until I was nine. And even when my parents did decide to tell me that I was autistic, I didn't really know what that meant. I knew that I was bullied 
for being different, but I, I don't think at that young age, I was able to make the relationship that my neurodiversity was impacting the way others were treating me. But one thing that did really stand out to me was that because I was bullied a lot, there was a girl in my grade who I had been in the same homeroom class for three years in a row, and she had ADD. And she had very visibly neurodiverse behaviors that other people thought were weird, socially inappropriate, gross. And the boys started bullying her. And I thought, well, that makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to start bullying her. And I didn't realize it until I was an adult. But I was like, did I bully her? Because I saw neurodiverse traits that I was rejecting in myself. And I went from being one of the bullies to the bully. And this went on for three years until, I don't know, I had a revelation that I liked her. We became best friends basically from middle school to the end of high school. But that guilt of bullying her really stuck with me, especially such a passionate advocate for students with ADHD and autism. And then another thing that had happened in fifth grade, we had to do buddies. And we had kindergarten buddies. My buddy had Down syndrome. And I remember feeling very angry that I had that Down syndrome buddy. And my teacher at the time knew, well, you know, she's autistic. She has empathy. She has this potential to be this advocate. But in the moment, I, I just felt like I had that anger of like, why am I with this person? It created that feeling of like, why am I different? And so... I reflected on that as an adult and I realized how would I have treated those kids differently if there was a, a more empowering, kind education to myself about what it meant to have a disability, what it meant to be neurodiverse. And so I guess I, I wanted to share that because I think it's just so important culturally that we don't hide those things. And that we teach kids that it's okay to be different and how we respond to those differences. Because I, I still, you know, to this day, as somebody who goes above and beyond for students with special needs and students with ADHD, I carry that burden of having been that bully. But I realized that that reaction of being a bully came from a lot of cultural messages about neurodiversity and disability being something that's weird or bad. So I'm hoping that, you know, future generations don't have that reaction that I did so that we can respond with more kindness and be an advocate and an ally to each other. Yeah. And that's why you're sharing your story. And that's why we all need to share our stories. And that's why we as educators really need to do the things that we can to help our students understand each other and collaborate together and work together and realize that we're all different in some way. And we're all part of a community, right? So, you know, yes. we're all, we celebrate our differences, but we're all in this together and we all have the similar problems to solve, right? We're all on the same team, whatever metaphor you want to use, right? So if we're part of all of us uh, on a community, then that leads to under that we need to understand each other. We need to have conversations. We need to allow for us to be vulnerable and be supported and all of those things that make a healthy community. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important for neurodiverse kids to recognize neurodiversity in other kids and be a friend rather than be a bully. How can people get in touch with you? Well, there's a, a couple of different ways. So they can contact us through our podcast episodes, which is on our 
website, understandingautism.info. They can email us or contact us through our first Facebook page. We have a Facebook group called Understanding Autism Community. Those are the principal two ways that they can contact us. Great. Yep. And we'll have those links in the show notes. Nicole and Brett, thank you so much for your authenticity and your openness and sharing this conversation. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. That's it for another episode of Rebel Educator. Thank you for joining us and thank you for spending your limited time with us learning how to be rebels in education. If you'd like to learn more or access our project library, you can go to rebeleducator.com. If you'd like to learn more about our progressive elementary and middle school in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out upacademy.com. Interested in learning more about our Rebel Literacy Project curriculum or launching your own school and joining our affiliate network? Visit projectup.us. And if you haven't read it yet, pick up your copy of my book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet on Amazon or anywhere you read or listen to your books. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Look forward to talking to you soon. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet Tier 1 standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.